0: welcome to the new books network
1: hello everyone welcome to this new books network podcast my name is leo Nascal, and today i'm joined by joe loitzo and elazar aslan the authors of boundless leadership joe is a psychotherapist researcher and buddhist scholar who in 2007 founded the nalanda institute for contemplative science a non-profit that engages thousands of people every year to help them lead fulfilling lives as a person, in the workplace, and as leaders. He's on the faculty at Columbia University and the Weill Cornell Medical College at Cornell, where he lectures and leads workshops on the role of meditative learning in health, education, and leadership. Elazar is an executive advisor, speaker, and as a former business executive and entrepreneur himself, brings the experience to couple up with Joe's research expertise. He spent many years as a marketing executive in B2B firms, including his own, and across a range of sectors as well before joining Joe as a director at the Nalanda Institute. Alazar is also a professional coach and over the past decade has worked with leaders of businesses including Mastercard, American Express, as well as a number of high growth startups. And together they're the authors of Boundless Leadership, which as a book is the product of decades of work, research and reflection to identify a complete roadmap to finding meaning in, in who we are as people, leaders and in the workplace. Now, I'm fascinated by leadership, and what my podcasts are really about is how we as leaders can build better societies, and we all play a role in that, and so what I try to explore are the new challenges to and the new contributions that people have made to thinking about leadership and new contributions about the challenges. But I've been looking for good new contributions to leadership for a while, and so I'm really delighted to speak to you both, Joe and Elazar, today. Um, but before we jump into the book, I'd love to give both of you the chance to introduce yourselves a little bit more and talk about your own journeys to today, how you've met each other, your experience working with each other, what you've learned from each other. Um, yeah. Who wants to go? Who wants to go first?
2: All right. I, I'll start. This is Elazar. Um, yeah, my own journey was sort of, uh, an, an organic one with my uh, background being in business. Um, you know, I certainly enjoyed a lot of the content that I was doing in the different uh, jobs and companies, but over time I found the process sort of suboptimal at best. And in fact, um, at the time it was really, there's such a strong focus on competition rather than collaboration. There was so much focus on results rather than the, the human element. Um, it was in fact believed that you, you come to work and all we want is your mind. You leave your emotions at home. You know, this kind of segregation between our lives as as people and our lives as professionals. And it was really, uh, I found it stressful and and unnecessary and kept looking for different ways of doing it, changing jobs and companies. I uh, didn't find too much difference there. But at the same time, there was my own uh, personal journey into self-development. And that's where I kind of understood that the inner terrain is really the source of the change. Um, and it, it also matched my own business journey, which was I was first in a, an executive thinking, hey, that the power, the leverage is by being on the client side. And then it seemed like it was on the consultant side that had better access to higher management and it seemed to be. Uh, you know, working with executives. So throughout that whole journey, I kept looking for where the leverage really was in uh, optimizing a business. And through 10 to 15 years of searching for it, it became very clear that the leverage is inside the limiting beliefs and the biases of the leaders. So that's when my focus in my career kind of shifted towards being more of a coach and really working with the individual leaders to revisit and reframe their biases and their uh, limitations. Um, And the personal journey is also how I connected with Joe, uh, who also was looking at a more of a contemplative approach to solving these problems.
1: Joe? That's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to diving into everything. And in particular, I've got some questions about you as a coach as well, which must be really rewarding. Um, But Joe, over to you. Yes.
0: Well, thanks, uh, 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 Theo and, and Elazar, uh, You know, I started out uh, interested, you know, my father was a psychiatrist, so I joke sometimes it was an inherited condition. Um, and, uh, you know, but I saw him doing therapy, going into the home office and out, and it seemed like a wonderful way to spend your life, just talking to people and trying to be helpful. But of course, I also saw him burn out over the years, uh, you know, working too hard and, let, you know, leaving aside some of the self-care and personal interests and development that had nourished him, um, and uh, you know, my mother, on the other hand, was a was a teacher, a social studies history teacher, and really maintained a lot of the things like gardening and and uh, reading and and uh, the spirituality interests. And so it seemed to me that if I was going to go into this the family business, as it were, um, that I really needed to do it a different way and integrate something you know, that would allow me to to engage from a different place, which was more sustainable, which was more self-nurturing uh, or, or uh, connected with my humanity and allowed me to develop my humanity as I grew rather than shrink it. <laughs> um, so, you know, basically, eventually I found, uh, I ran into a, a, a an ex-Buddhist monk, one of the first uh, Western Tibetan monks, Bob Thurman, in college and got interested in the potential of buddhism as a scientifically psychologically minded spiritual tradition to provide a bridge between sort of internal development and uh engagement in the world um, and and so that's been my path for for decades um and uh, throughout my you know medical studies I, and and training and subsequent career i've been really focusing on parallel sort of studying contemplative practices of self-transformation and self-development as well as how to integrate them into professional life into the world that we live in which is anything but contemplative right It's the exact opposite of contemplative um, and uh you know so that eventually led me to uh you know founding some cent- a center at columbia presbyterian integrating meditation into the healing process and then I felt that in order to really train professionals in a, in, in this very radically different way of learning, I would I needed to take it out into an in, uh, independent nonprofit. That's no institute. And essentially, we train uh, therapists, uh, coaches, uh, teachers, business people, and using different programs that allow them over time to, to dive into these. Uh, ways of exploring and transforming their way of being and bringing that to whatever it is they're doing. And I think in terms of the the theme you raised about change in the world, you know, the change, uh, you know, the world really, uh, you know, functions not because there's anybody, you know, uh, standing out imposing the rules of the system. We're all trained and we all really continue to co-create a way of being that's not sustainable. So I think that the change has to start, as is pointing out, by instead of sort of just adding more bells and whistles, more skills and, and knowledge to a fundamentally uh, unsustainable way of being and living, we need to learn how to shift to a more sustainable, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, not less driven or more, uh, you know, authentic way of being uh, that allows us to Slowly reshape the way we engage the world, the way we gather in, in communities and institutions, and sort of the change comes from within, and, uh, and and has to be kind of a chain reaction of of a lot of individuals uh, waking up and and realizing we can't continue to live this way.
1: That's really interesting. I think the you, you talked a lot about the sustainability of of how of what our leadership looks like and. It's sort of sustainability at two levels, isn't it? Elazar's talk was mentioned his his father and sort of the amount of work, the balance that you have between work and and every, and the play, and that and whether that's sustainable. But also, it's about us as a society and whether everything that we put in is sustainable as as well. In 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 your preface, I think it is Joe. You talk about leadership at a at a turning point, and one of the ideas of sustainability is that it can't go on forever. Do you see us sort of beginning to think about leadership in different ways you mentioned that you were speaking to one of the first Buddhist monks in in the u s um Do you see the these changes sort of happening where Where do you think we stand in in that respect?
0: I think we're a lot further along than I ever imagined we would be, right because especially given the compounding of you know the the climate crisis. the the pressure toward greater equity in society, in the workplace, Um, you know, the, uh, you know, the the issues of that, the whole new issues of of what the work, what does the workplace look like post COVID? um, There's a lot of, a lot of questioning going on and people are really talking about things that had really just been kind of somewhat academic. Like, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, and now they're real issues like, you know, How do I maintain my work-life balance now that I've had the chance to spend a few years or a lot of us have been lucky enough to spend a few years uh, living and working from home and having a little more integration with, say, family or daily rhythms? Um, And I also think clearly we're in a different place understanding the climate crisis. I think where we're trying to bring attention to is the sort of inner experience, how all of this, how the unsustainability that we see. Of the way we're doing business uh, relates to each one of us and the way we're living and there there's a kind of another kind of sustainability which is how do i succeed and contribute in a way that really enriches my humanity and that's coming from my humanity rather than you know in spite of or, or squelching or so there i think the key issue is also in in outside the realm of business the understanding of the role of stress and debunking a lot of the myths that that modern business is based on—the notion of the rational individual and and life as a struggle for survival or com- competition—and um, the notion that stress is good and all the emotions like greed and and uh, you know uh, you know rage and so on that often fuel leadership, quote unquote, um, somehow are the necessary fuel. For uh, for us to succeed, and science is showing us in every way positive psychology, affective neuroscience. We're really understanding that we've just got it all wrong, and at, actually, at bottom, we're really uh, fundamentally social beings, not fundamentally alienated, cooperative, you know, uh, competitive individuals. And that when we we can connect with ourselves and others on a human basis, it's when we unlock. Not only the keys to well-being and real inner success and sustainability, but also the keys to real, you know, that's boundless creativity. Like all of us being in our creative places together and learning how to co-create uh, in a in a non-stress-driven uh, but more socially connective way.
2: Yeah, I think Leo, um, you bring up a really good point, which is why. Joe and I went after leadership, right? Because you bring up the issue of there's the macro impact and the micro impact, the, the leadership as defined by, you know, having influence over others or inspiring others, leading others, having impact through larger groups, right, as leadership, but also leadership, there's self-leadership, right, our ability to, to lead ourselves in our own lives, to a lot of the points that Joe's speaking to, to bring well-being and sustainability in our own lives. So, with boundless leadership, and the reason we kind of focus on that is that you got to address the micro, the individual level. But as a leader, you can also have an impact that's far greater ju- than just yourself and your life, right? As a leader, depending leader of what organization, what teams, you can in- impact the network, your ecosystem. And those ecosystems can obviously over time and in, in connection impact the world. So you do need both points. You, you, you have a very good insight that you need the individual, which is what Joe is talking about, what that takes. And you need to bring a different view, a different um, uh, flavor to what you want to do as a leader in this world.
1: Mm, I think thinking about that internal side, leading the self, is something that's really, really neglected. Um, let's try to put some some colour on that then and how we navigate it. I mentioned, so I do a lot of work in, in working with executives, just like you. And I was sitting down with an interview with some really successful guy. He's he he's leads his North American team, billions in revenue and money that he processes, and he, and he just wants more. He wants to progress to be the global leader. And he wants to then sort of make his company even bigger and compete with others and go on and on. And at the same time, he also wants to pursue his spirituality. He's a he's a he's a Buddhist guy actually well, born in born in India, grew up there. Um, but it's that conflict that I think we're talking about. And in the book, something I really loved was you're splitting it in between talking about the survival mode and the thriving mode. And I think that's a related idea idea here is that sort of does that put color on in the right way and the ideas that we're talking about how do we navigate those two different modes of thinking of of being
2: yeah uh you want me to take that out or Um, i mean clearly a a big aspect of it's a psychological one uh if i take that and i'll take it from a business end okay Yeah. yeah so i think
0: um you know the way we've learned to discipline ourselves or think about uh, success is in terms of looking at life and our, and our way of being in the world as a struggles for survival. And unfortunately, that's reinforced what we call our default, you know, mode, that is the sort of way we come out of the womb is we're primarily focused on just surviving first right so that's we fall back on that and that those are all of our stress instincts and responses and habits unfortunately when our culture buys into the same model and doesn't you know give us permission or or the the reminders we need to realize that stress you know can really be overkill and actually isn't necessarily the right tool for the job in terms of living well uh being creative connective happy um then we uh you know we get stuck as individuals and as a society in just driving ourselves uh as if you know there's some big scarcity or there's some sort of big uh you know we we push ourselves to to sort of win and then we're and we're depleted and exhausted and incapable of enjoying whatever it is we've won so what we don't understand is that you know in the thriving mode that is the way in which we can just be as we are accept ourselves in the world accept others and be able to connect with ourselves and others in a in a uh, open playful caring way that that's really what starts to unlock the real creativity that we need Right. So that thriving mode, essentially, which is our social mode, our, our playful, connective, uh, you know, uh, uh, co-creative mode um, is fundamental to, uh, you know, abundance, creativity, productivity. It's where all of those things come from. But we've got it wrong. We are culture, in part, just for historical reasons, uh, has sort of reinforced the default setting that we come out of the womb with, with which is to sort of look out for number one, to sort of uh, fear the worst. And that actually locks down our full potential, not only to enjoy life, but even to be creative, connective and and uh, to, to, for thriving to occur uh, in, in families, communities and businesses. So this is really where this importance of accessing the part of us that can uh, Connect and belong um, is is where all the science is going, and I think it's where business is going to be going as well. Or it's, it's and some businesses are already starting to move in that direction, the culture of compassion and so on.
2: You could you could see it in business on on multiple fronts, right? This idea, if you were to look at it, one perspective is I want to be self protective, the survival mode, or I want to be expansive and open, the thriving mode. And so in business, you can walk into a meeting and there's a presentation that's being made and two people are arguing about what the right next step is, happens all the time. And we typically focus on the facts and the figures, etc. But at the end of the day, there's probably an individual there that has a self-protective view and is saying, how do I minimize risk? And the other person probably has the expansive view that is thinking, How do I maximize opportunity? Well, you could talk about the facts and figures all you want. As long as you're having different views, you're going to feel strongly that your decision is the right one. That's just at, you know, on an everyday meeting basis, uh, person to person. But on a more organizational level, right, you know, you could be motivating out of fear and looking for innovation and collaboration. But it's really not going to come when you're motivating out of fear. Or you could be inspiring out of engagement and your whole psychology, the, the whole brain and mind processes are now open up for innovation. So even on an organizational level, you can see how your approach has a very strong impact on the results, whether you're going from a, a survival mode or a thriving mode.
1: Hmm. And yeah, I think this is, this is a really important insight because I think everyone relates to that. You're debating about facts and and maybe even theories as well. And but when you dig beneath it, people are they have their own view. They have their own sort of agenda that they want to pursue. And it seems to me that the big challenge is helping people jump from that survival mode to the thriving mode. And this is sort of what what the book is about, right? How we get to that to that level. What do you want outlining? Maybe I'll go to Joe first to talk about yeah Joe first. And do you want outlining the The framework in terms of thinking about that and going on that journey.
0: Sure. So we often think of stress as something outside of us, Um, but the reality is stress is a response just to a challenge, and so it's really about the way we understand, you know, relate and and respond to any particular challenge that we face, and it 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 doesn't just happen. We talk about the amygdala hijack a lot, right? But actually, stress is operating in different ways at all levels of our nervous system, whether we're worst case thinking or, or more optimistic or, or, you know, open, whether we're in negative emotions, like fear, uh, you know, uh, anger, uh, insecurity, shame, or we're in positive emotions like trust, care, connection, uh, and whether our bodies our autonomic nervous systems, for example, are in fight or flight mode, uh, or even freeze mode or paint or freeze mode, we're overwhelmed and fatigued. At all these different levels, uh, our systems are committed to a default pros, a process of re- stress reactivity. So if we really want to shift, we've got a multi-level process that's required, right? We need to learn how to work on and di- as we talk about the d- discipline of mind, discipline of heart, discipline of body, that, those are the essential, ways that we train to, to sh- make the shift at the level of our uh, thinking or perceiving th- at the level of our, our emoting or the our the heart level of where our emotional uh mind is at any any one point um and at the level of the body what sort of our is our body in fight or flight mode is gripping pushing driving or are we feeling safe open well flexible playful um, and so it's by you know looking at those that comprehensive understanding of what's really needed to make a fundamental or radical shift out of survival mode um, not just changing our thinking it's just not enough you know changing all these things all these levels and then breaking each of the disciplines down into uh, you know steps that you know we look at traits that sort of re- reflect express the best or the thriving mode at the level of the mind, we describe as the trait of self awareness, at the level of the heart, the trait of authentic engagement, at the level of the body, the, the trait of embodied flow. And so, but again, those are very big things and could seem completely overwhelming and daunting, and we wouldn't know where to start. So, we break those down into a smaller steps basically and connect. the the smallest steps to specific practices, right? So we essentially give people a systematic roadmap that actually helps you build and train the muscles that you need to make these shifts over time so that it becomes really accessible.
2: And it's really important to, to add, Leo, that this book and everything that Joe described actually is based on a program that we've had for some years now. And the aim of the program is to actually affect change in the individual. It's a program transformation. So this book is is not really designed to simply download more information. There's a lot of information and a lot of science, a lot of uh, cases. So it's there, but that's not its intention. Its intention is to really inspire you and show you methodically how to transform yourself from a protective stance as your default to a thriving stance and all the benefits that kind of flow from there
1: yeah i think that emphasis on the journey is something that's really important this is it's more than a book and this is i don't mean to big myself up but this is more than a podcast it's helping people go on a on a journey to develop themselves and i wonder i think um i mentioned this, i should have said this before but my my mum runs a, a mindfulness charity and a lot of the the lessons that the advice that the book sort of tries to dispel is revolves around meditation and mindfulness. And I think that's um, a, a challenge for people to get involved in. It can be difficult to take that first leap and to, to figure out how to how to do it, how to do it right. I wonder, Aliza. I think this has been actually, yeah, Aliza. I think this is a journey that you've gone on yourself. How? What were the big milestones for you in thinking, realizing, I'm making Progress And similarly, what are the big moments where you thought maybe it was difficult? What, what was that journey like like for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to the why first, right? Why did I even take it on? Um, I, I did at some point intuitively understand that any change in my experience with the world really has to come with a change in how I perceive the world and how I relate to the world. And that all happens in my mind. So for me, meditation was intriguing because it was like spending time getting to know your mind, you know, which is the thing that processes all your experiences. So although that sounds exciting and the benefits include getting insights like, oh, wow, I didn't know. Um, it also has these issues, you know, sitting with our mind isn't always that much fun. <laughs> you know? We have this perception that our mind is this beautiful um, part of that we can command it to do whatever we wish and the moment you sit to do any kind of meditation you realize your mind actually has a mind of its own so to speak and is constantly uh, bombarded with stimuli reacting to stimuli and you kind of feel it's not even yours so this idea of training your mind this powerful I I, I think of it as this powerful uh, animal so beautiful so much strength that you can use in so many different ways, but it's wild. You can't even get it to come near you, much less do everything you want it to do. So that process of training that powerful animal and shifting how you experience your life is really uh, keeps me going. And, and you know, in meditation, everybody's a beginner, right? There's no end to it. You you never finish. It's all the same uh, struggle, if you will, that you overcome. But you do get these insights, you do get these shifts. You notice, I mean, you know, for me personally, um, I found greater joy in in very ordinary things that I never had before. Before my definition of joy was, what's the big thing? What's the extraordinary thing? What, What, you know, but through meditation became, no, it's just this cup of tea, just this cup of tea in my hand was exceptional, you know, in its ordinariness. That came from meditation. Um, equanimity, my ability to not be so attached to things the way I want them and so disappointed when they didn't happen the way I wanted them. Still something, you know, I'm working on, but I'm at a much different level of acceptance of things just flowing. So, you know, and what is the difficulty is the progress isn't something, it's not, the, the cause and effect is not so clear or direct, at least not for me. It's not like I sit today and I got that tomorrow. Then I sit and, you know, it just flows in a way I'm I'm not that aware of. So you, you can't really pin it one-to-one. But what I would say, the difficulty, two difficulties in meditation is, as, you know, we bring it into the business world. One difficulty that many people find is time. I don't have the time. Like I already have so much. Don't ask me to do more. But really, meditation is not something that you need to train hours and hours every day, multi-times a week. You know, even just a small uh, exposure to it, five minutes, ten minutes. And we even teach that even if you don't have five minutes, if you can just focus on your breath, just don't change it, just watch it for one minute, in, out, or count it. Just one minute. You start having an impact. So time isn't really the issue we think. The second problem that people bring up is, oh, I try it. It's just I can't do it. I'm bad at meditation. Well, here's the big news. We're all bad at meditation. Meditation is a practice of simply getting better, simply training your mind to do something that it's not accustomed to do. That's what people really experience as bad, but that's actually the work, and we all do it just as well as we need to do it. So those are the two kind of obstacles we found in in working with it with new people.
1: Hmm. Joe, you're you're the expert. I've got an idea that I've wanted to to run by you. Um, when I was you sort of you talked about the the mind, the heart, and the body, and leveraging all three of those disciplines. It reminded me. Um, what was I reading? I was reading Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents, and he talks about. Um, three sort of personalities, I suppose, that, that individuals fall into that sort of seem to map on. He talks about, um, so when we talk about the mind, he talks about the narcissist who sort of thinks and enjoys thinking internally and getting clarity of their mind. He talks about, the the, the language is a bit dated, he talks about the erotic who is the lover and has that heart and maybe has that compassion as well. And Thirdly, he talks about the man of action, who is our fearlessness, our, our body. Is that what do you think of that similarity? Is it building on that? Is it a response to it? It's it's also different in, in ways as well. Yes, well, of course, you know, Freud's
0: understanding of the mind was based on an understanding of the nervous system that he had as a researcher before he before he invented psychoanalysis. Um mm-hmm. And, and so, in a way, is our uh, three threefold approach. Um, and yeah, they're different. Each of us, while he's describing different personality styles, the fact of the matter is each of us has a thinker, a feeler, and an actor inside of us. And yes, you could map them onto different parts of the brain, like the new, newest part of the brain, the neocortex, is where we think and imagine. Uh, the, the, the older, uh, what we call the limbic system, the part of the brain we developed when we became mammals, is more about emoting, connecting, empathizing. Um, and the oldest part of the brain is really more about, you know, doing and being, you know, like staying, you know, how we regulate our basic uh, uh, rhythms and, and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, physically show up in the world. So rather than worrying about who each of us is, like which category we fall into, our approach is really very much a kind of, you know, every human being is a kind of multiplicity or needs to be whole. We, each of us, in order to be the whole being, need to find the part of us that is the thinker, that can that can have a clear mind and really get over, get over our biases so we can think very critically uh, and, and objectively. We need to get into the you know the emotional part of our being and warm it up and open it up so that we can connect with ourselves and others with compassion because thinking isn't enough uh, to to do anything really effectively. you know we, we need to we're social animals, so we need to think with other people and hence that means we need to connect with, with those we're thinking with. Um, and then of course, we need to be able to tap into our uh, just physical uh, you know energy, Balance, uh, uh, you know, internal experience or, or way of, you know, stance in the world, which communicates a tremendous amount to others. As leaders, our body language and the energy of our of our bodies is a huge uh, uh, potential source of of help or harm, right? So, in order to really be uh, a a balanced leader, from our point of view we need to be all those we need to sort of wake up all those parts of ourselves even if we may be more inclined to you know we may have a, a brain that's more intelligent or naturally inclined to use thinking as a strength or use uh, embodied action as a strength or use the heart as a strength again part of the part of the the revolution of of mindfulness is that we we understand now that through training our attention and repeated practice the brain being plastic, we can actually activate parts of ourselves that we that may have been relatively dormant, or we can shift the way our brain is processing, um, so we don't have to be stuck with how we came out forever. You know what I mean? We can really uh, resculpt ourselves um, to, to thrive, and and the idea is we have all of us have have really boundless potential to do things that we that we don't think we can.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to have a think about, we have this framework of how to think about the individual, but I think the next, or at least maybe not the next step, but one of the next steps is thinking about how how we can change organizationally, thinking about that macro level. Are there, and a lot of it comes down to how people behave as leaders. And i love to think about sort of, imagine, say, we have a leader who, is, who has meditated a lot, feels that they've made some progress on that journey, what can, what, what sort of, I suppose, behaviors do we see? What can they do to, to have that impact and spread their, their journey across their organization? What sort of things do you advise?
2: Yeah. Um, so let me give it a framework first, right? Because we're all at different parts of it. Even the same person is at different parts of the journey and on different days. But the first task really is to, to create that framework for yourself. You know, we refer to it as that space, that space within you to create that. But once you create it and, and you go into the office, if you will, and others are, are misbehaving, if you will, um, your ability to hold that space is the next level. I can, I can create it within me, but can I hold it when others aren't, aren't having it? And the third level is, can I now bring it and affect change? So at each level, what your, what your actions are, are different. So once you, to your point of, I, I've been doing this, I'm a leader, and I have that inner safety, I have that self-awareness, I have that ability to pause and see things more clearly, um, by simply modeling it, right, holding that, you start having the impact on those around you because it's the preferred mode to be. You know, we much prefer somebody seeing us when we're talking, hearing us when we're talking, seeing us as a human being and not just some uh, implement in their grand design. Those things have an impact on us. So if we're able to offer that right there, we're going to have an impact. Right. Um, So one is this bringing this level of understanding of the other human being, helping create a psychological safety in the way you are treating them and perceiving them. So bringing that psychological safety to those around you will have the greatest impact of all, right? It's, it's enough. It will then do all the things that Joe's been talking about in the other individual beginning to shift out of a survival mode into a thriving mode just because you've helped them feel more safe in how they're being perceived and treated. Um, that's like on a one-to-one basis. You could go on a full macro level because, you know, as we all know, um, function follows form, right? We, we do spend time on form so that we can get the right function. So if you're looking at a function of collaboration, teamwork, engaged beings, but you're doing it in a form called a pyramid inside of an organization, you can't get around the fact that there is a scarcity mentality built in the into the organization. At some point, only some of us are going to get promoted. At some point, only one of us is going to be head of the organization. So here we are building teamwork and collaboration in a system that mimics, you know, musical chairs when we were kids. At, at, at the end of every song, somebody's left out. Eventually, there's only one winner. So that mentality is kind of contrary to building this cohesive, cooperative, collaborative, innovative, uh, free-flowing, cared-for organization. So at the highest level, what leaders can do is rethink the structure within which they are holding their their teams and organizations. At the moment-to-moment level is how do I bring the psychological safety that I feel within me, bring it out to those around me. Do
1: you want to say a bit more on how we build that psychological safety? It's something that I think I've Talked about in the past, but it's a, it's a term that I think really benefits from adding more color to it because it is such a powerful culture to embed in a, in a team.
2: Yeah, so you could certainly understand it by looking when you don't have it, right? You walk into a room and you have a very aggressive person that is not only with energy and, and, and presence um, overwhelming you, but they're blaming you. Or others for everything that's going wrong, right? So they have this sense of something bad is happening, and I'm gonna find out who it is that caused this bad thing, and I'm gonna make their life even worse. Well, that's very hard to feel psychologically safe there. You're, you're immediately in a defend mode, right? So the first thing, the psychological safety, is to shift the idea of blaming and shaming as a way to managing to actually bringing uh, a curiosity to what's happening, to depersonalize it. Hey, these things happen. We don't like it when it happens and we're gonna find better ways of addressing it so it doesn't happen again. And we're capable of doing that. We've done it before, we're gonna do it again. That's a very different context from, God damn it, we lost another client? Who did this? I told you never to, and everybody's now hiding right so the first aspect of psychological safety is to you as a leader don't elevate the stress by making it so much worse like joe was saying we go to this worst case scenario all the time and now we gotta find the person that's going to to fix it because they broke it right so we want to depersonalize it we don't want to bring the sense of higher stress into the conversation we want to support the people because we trust that together as a team, we will solve this problem. So we move, we as a leader move out of how could somebody do this to me? How can I succeed if the people around me are always screwing up and and I need to put a stop at it, right? We flip that to, of course we can do it. It's business. This is a territory business, problems, disappointments, things gonna ride. That's why we get paid. Let's go team, we can do this. How are we gonna do it, right? So. You, you can see how the second one, with the psychological safety brings out the best in the people to be collaborative, to solve the solution rather than stay in the problem. That's the other thing I find a lot, I'm sure you do as you work with leaders, is there's so much attention that stays on the problem. How did it happen? Why did it happen? Who did it? Can't this, you know, as opposed to saying, okay, it happens. How do we solve it? Where do we go? How do we avoid it happening again? That all creates and comes out of psychological safety.
1: Mm, and I think when you move on from the problem, you start thinking about the people as part of the solution. It reminds me of a phrase in, in the book, I think, is empowered responsibility, focusing on the people. And it's a, it's a leadership style that's trusting. You empower your, your team and you trust them to, to have the responsibility to, to get on with it. Um, shall I go to you next, I just want to work towards a close. I'm wondering where, where do you want to take this next? Um, we talked about how this is the product of, of years of work and it's a nice, it's a beautiful way to produce it as a framework that's really accessible. What is the next step? And I suppose in, 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 um, communicating your, your message and the, this framework.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, part of what we're learning about human beings, is just how incredibly social we are and how it's not just a matter of thinking, you know? And so I think that, you know, Elazar mentioned the program that we run that's that sort of is based on, that, that the book grows out of. Um, but one way or another, I think uh, people need other people. And we, uh, in order to make these shifts, we don't just do them in the in our reading room. You know our, our meditation room all by ourselves we really need uh to find like-minded others who who see that the the challenge and the opportunity who are trying to um you know find another alternative and and are, we're really willing to to invest in the the work you know to try as much as possible to make these shifts and we need to be able to do that in community together um and to stay connected over a long enough period of time that it actually sticks, you know? And so that's part of what we offer in the balanced leadership program, which is a six-month program we meet weekly. And you just develop a sense of, well, people's, you know, the crisis that I thought was just me and my personal issues or my personal, you know, uh, bad luck or hang-ups or whatever. Turns out we can see patterns and we can see the bigger picture and we can see how the, the cultural system and the and the and the business and the system of how we've thought about an organized business have actually c- contributed to a lot of the problems that we feel are very personal. So, yeah, that's what I think is is really uh, you know probably most critical is that the critical mass of people recognizing something needs to change and coming together, really trying to support each other and trusting our capacity as humans to reinvent you know, business, <laughs> to reinvent leadership, um, and to do it together, uh, by starting by connecting with ourselves more authentically. Uh, that's, I think, where the future is. And I, and I do see it happening in many in many places. So, you know, I'm, I'm more hopeful than ever that uh, we're going to rise to the challenge.
1: Mm, I'm optimistic as well. I think lots of what the ideas that we're talking about rely on, rely in... People feeling comfortable in their own it's people feeling comfortable in their own skin, it's people feeling comfortable with the choices they make in their lives. And I think these are people that that I see in terms of people that are sort of going through their career, going through their lives, making those choices, they're a lot more thoughtful about that and feel comfortable making those choices. So I'm I'm optimistic, like you, and even more so after speaking to you. Um yeah, I think let's draw to a close That I've really enjoyed speaking to both of you, Jared and Alizar today. And also thank you to everyone else for listening to this episode. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can head over to to the blog um, on empoweredbelonging.substack.com. You'll find a section on the homepage about boundless leadership, about what we can learn from the book, what we've learned from the podcast today, and you'll be able to offer your thoughts as well. I'd also love to hear your feedback in addition. Um, So let me know what you thought about this podcast anonymously at bits.ly forward slash feedback-leo. Both links as well as a link to the Boundless Leadership website are going to be in the description below. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and are able to bring up the book with up soon, bring it up with a friend or a colleague, family. But for now, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.